0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 67 of Literary Disco, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Today we'll discuss satire, beginning with a themed revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will each present a particular work of satire that we've loved. And then we'll head to the infamous loony universe created by Douglas Adams when we discuss his 1979 classic work of science fiction, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I am actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Joining me are novelist and critic, Todd Goldberg, and essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hello. Good
1: evening. Nice to see all of you again.
2: You too. I hope the Earth doesn't blow up while we're talking. (laughs) (laughs) This is how I want to go, though, you guys. This is like, if the Earth were to end, this would be... I would be satisfied with this.
0: In which part? The The Earth just evaporating or being whisked away on a magical spaceship to take you or, or do
1: universe. you mean um, with with me and Ryder in a Google chat
2: yeah yeah oh that's well, what i that's, meant that's i mean so there's worse ways
1: yeah know. i mean if you're going to die have it be with super good looking dudes
2: mhm that's exactly <laughs> what i meant
1: <laughs> or or a super good looking dude and Ryder strong mhm
2: <laughs> yeah sorry ryder
1: <laughs> that's okay <laughs>
0: I figured I was on the losing end of that uh, equation. You, you saw that joke coming? Yeah. That, that one was... <laughs> about a mile away, but...
1: Well, you okay. know, we, we were talking before the show started um, about the fact that all of us uh, are, are in the midst of big writing projects. And, you know, one of the emails I get a lot from people is asking us what our writing process is for each of us that are writers. And maybe we should talk about just that for just a moment, because I think people are interested in that. Sure.
2: Hmm. Okay. So, Julie, um,
1: what's your writing process?
2: Well, um, I mean, in general, I write best when I have a notebook that when I have a notebook that I've had around for a while and I have lots of like ideas and notes that have been percolating for a long time. I mean, like I really need to be thinking about something for a while before I start writing it well. Um, And I think that's leftover from my dog walking days where I would... (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would get that's up in the morning. Yeah. That's a great sentence. It's a leftover from my dog walking. This was, this was, you know, this was a great process for me. I would get up in the morning and be like, today I'm going to work out in my head that essay about X, Y, Z. And then I'd go basically on six hours of walking around with silent animals. And then I'd get home and I'd write about it. Um, so that was <laughs> that's great. That's a
0: great schedule. Yeah, that's not so bad.
2: It was awesome. But I it, I had to go through that process first of deciding what I was going to think about. Um, Mm -hmm. because letting the 21st century mind wander is not good for anybody, uh, (laughs) without, without directive. So, um, but now, you know, I, I was just saying to you guys offline that I, I really need to write in the morning, like by, by midday, I'm just, you know dead and jumbled and obsessed with my email so i like to get up
1: yeah that's the thing is that yeah now like by midday my creativity is gone oh, yeah. like all i want to do is just lay in bed and watch like 50 episodes of chopped and just judge people on their lack of cooking skill
2: mm-hmm. i'm just obsessed with having my email at zero yeah, that's well, that's. What, I
0: think we have a limited amount of focus, you know, and when you spend all your time at a computer and you're focusing on all these virtual worlds, whether it be a collection of friends on Facebook or emails you have to reply to or business stuff, phone calls you have to make, I mean, that takes so much energy. And it's like, if you haven't, if you haven't already gotten your focus onto the page before you go through that, you know, ring of fire, uh... You're done. Like, you know, by the end of a couple hours of phone calls and emails and social media, it's like, all right, you're done. You can't. You're not going to then so, return to creativity. So
1: do you guys turn off the Internet when you're writing or are you bouncing back and forth?
2: I bounce to my detriment. Yeah, I got to stop.
1: <laughs> bounce to my detriment. Bounce to my detriment. I try. I try and One of the focus. best rap I, songs There's ever. actually a
0: program called Self Control that you can download for the Mac that <laughs> You can give it like the websites that. you don't want to be allowed to visit <laughs> yeah, and it Ugh. will cut them off for you. And I've, I've definitely done that a couple of times when I'm like, I haven't written, you know, I've been sitting here for an hour and I haven't written anything. I need to turn off all the websites and, but you still right. want to have access to the internet because of course you're looking up random facts that enter your writing or names or places. And so you still want to have some access to the internet, but it's a dangerous
1: what. Yeah, I was thinking about that very thing today when I was working, and because I went to research something, and I went down a rabbit hole that ended up with me, you know, basically like looking up arcane facts about, you know, stupid trivia, and then football statistics, and then googling people that I'd gone to high school with, and and then you know, it's just it's it's just gone. I feel like see these are the things that Steinbeck and Hemingway, uh, they didn't have these problems they could just sit there and drink and write <laughs> and and all this stuff drifted away from that they didn't have anything to worry about well, so what's your process? To anything Todd. to worry about
2: <laughs> I mean, war, war one, at least in Hemingway's you know, case their upcoming suicide <laughs> yeah. so Todd tell us about your process
1: you know I was I was just thinking today that I had to change my process up that uh just typing just wasn't going to do it I think I needed to start Really starting to dictate and have someone else do the work, so I could go out and live my life. (laughs) I don't think that's gonna work. Well, I used to be a nighttime writer, but I'm trying to be a daytime writer. But I, I have to, I have to think for a really long time before I write something. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in the middle of of working on um, a new piece of fiction right now, and I can sort of see the length of it, but. That's stopping me somewhat from just the individual scenes. And I don't know if you guys suffer from that same problem, like when you know the beginning, the middle, and the end, and you feel like you just want to sh- jump to the good parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I've found is that the more coffee I drink, um, the more I think I know what I'm doing, but actually it's just that my heart is beating super fast and that uh, I'm not really actually accomplishing anything. So the I've false been sense of exhilaration. To- like yes, like that's exactly yeah. it. That I've been, i came I've up with something good. No, you didn't. You're just sweating because you <laughs> no, drank too much no. coffee. All right. You had breakfast blend. Yeah. That was your problem. <laughs> so I've been—I've been trying to wean myself off of legalized stimulants while I write to see if uh, to see if I actually can do this right. on, a, <laughs> on a more regular basis without it. I and in, in a way, I feel like those people that are like, oh, I have to drink in order to get to the spot. And I'm like, man, I, I drink a shitload little coffee when I'm writing. Can I write without having, you know, nine cups of coffee in me? And also, I would probably go to the bathroom a lot less, which would, which would probably be helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, I spend a lot of time thinking, and then I write in like bursts. You know, it'll be five hours, and I'm just going. And then, you know, then I'll tr- if, if I if I don't recognize that I've lost it, I'll try to be try to recapture that moment over and over again that same day until I just realize that. I've petered out. So I try to stop myself when I'm hot. Like stop in the middle of a sentence or stop in the middle of a scene now. Um, that's my new thing that I'm doing is stopping when I'm hot. That's great. Like I'm. Uh,
2: stop smart. it like yeah. it's hot. I don't... Stop it like you're hot. Stop
1: it like it's hot. Stop no, it's like good. Because then you know
0: you, when you start the next day, you're coming back with something yeah, ready yeah. to finish. Yeah. That's cool. What about you, Ryder? Uh, well, my process is a little weirder just because I write with a partner. I write with my brother, Shiloh. And, you know, we're writing, we're writing screenplays. So it's a much more structured, I think, in terms of writing, like when we're actually, like the process of how we get from an idea to uh, a finished script is very structured. The steps are very predictable and they're always the same. Um, So for us, the biggest challenge is just time management between two different people, Mm. you know, and and everybody Mm -hmm. has their own sort of set of skills on like how to time manage. Like I'm very different than my brother in that way. So uh, you know, our big, our hardest issue is just figuring out when we write best, when we're in the best mood. Uh, you know, mm. that could be either one of us because you start to learn when you write with a partner that so much is dependent upon mood, mm-hmm. and um, and you don't even realize it until you're in a room together and you're suddenly spent. You know, ten minutes just screaming about something that has really not that important and then you're like oh my god it's me i'm totally in the worst mood and i shouldn't have started writing today and so just learning to manage your time and and why you're in those moods and how i mean it's much more of a a social skill um between my brother and i than i think uh something that 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 if i was writing alone would be much more of just a creative um endurance test it's more of a social endurance test between the two
1: of us so Um, is one of you is one of you talking and the other one's typing
0: no, we actually don't write in the same room together that often. We we, we outline. You know, um, the hardest part about screenplay writing is the outline. Right. And you have to really... It's a really form... Um, it's not formulaic. Uh, I think it was Sid Field that said it's not formulaic. It's a form. And it's true, like you have to have a certain form to a script and, you know, because you're talking about time that somebody's going to experience in a movie theater or on their TV screen ultimately. So it's much more structured and you have to really just, you know, I mean, we we haven't written a page of our new draft right now even though we're more than halfway through what we'll end up because the more than half of it has just been outlining. Right. And that's just for a rewrite. Um, but it's very structured in terms of going from the big ideas to actual acts and then within those acts... Um, you know uh, conventional scene structures and what we're doing with them. It's constant shuffling of scenes and outline and ideas and characters. It's a, it's a it's a weird process that I think you know anybody who's ever tried to write a screenplay would would understand. So
1: all three of us though have written comedy and Julia, you perform comedy mm-hmm. and we're talking about satire today. Yes, I'm excited. And I know mm-hmm. I know and I'm thinking about writing something funny, like figuring out if I'm in a mood to write something funny is is half of the trial. Like, it, can I actually get to that place in my head to write a comedic mm-hmm. scene? And so as we are about to talk about our favorite satires, I'm just sort of curious for both of you, like do you have to be feeling funny to write funny?
2: I never think I'm funny, like ever, even when I'm performing comedy. Like, Even
1: though you're a stand-up comic?
2: I'm not a stand-up. <laughs> I'm an improviser.
1: I'm sorry, improvisation. But, uh, no, I sorry. do think that's
2: important because, well, first of all, it's heavily on my mind because I've committed to doing a five-minute stand-up set for this show we're doing of improvisers doing stand-up, which would be great. But um, it's really different because with improv, you know, you're out there with someone and it's a lot more of what writers talking about. It's right. like their mood and it's very collaborative. So you, there's less pressure for you to be funny on every, any given day. Now... Like, I'll end up saying funny things, but then they, they are coming out of a more organic place than coming into a room and saying, like, okay, it's my job to be funny right now. Like, I mean, I can always let myself off the hook mm-hmm. and think, like, um, you know, I just want to make sure Greg's funny or Laura's funny or any of my teammates tonight. I mean, it's much easier mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. into humor as a group, which is, um, as I'm saying, interesting thinking about, you know, what I want to talk about, my favorite um Satirists later um but yeah i mean like i don't think my essays are funny i guess sometimes they're funny by accident or they have funny moments but i the idea of just sitting down to write like a comedic novel is so intimidating i mean so much harder (laughs) than writing something dramatic do you guys agree
0: Uh, and i think that would be a mistake i think that's the wrong way to approach it honestly i think that mostly things end up being funny because of a natural personality instinct that somebody has or or creative tendency that somebody has. Because the truth is, I I mean, for me, like, if I I know that the funniest stuff I've ever produced, whether it be in performance or in writing, is when I'm feeling most Mm -hmm. confident. And that it's more about feeling comfortable and feeling free and being open. Because, you know, comedy situations, the best comedy... Well, I mean, this is... I'm, you know, speaking from a obviously from a script perspective more than a fiction perspective or a nonfiction perspective, but so much in a script comedy comes from really great conflict Mm -hmm. and, you know, a situational conflict and the, the actual, like, you know, I think a lot of people think of a funny movie. They think of the witty line that was given, but usually that line came out of a very good situation, right? You know, and it almost could have been one of five different lines and it would have been just as funny. It was more like the situation, the trap was sprung by these, conflicting characters and then the writer was open to it being a comedic release valve out of that situation as opposed to if you're writing a drama you're going to write your your you know you're going to head towards where there's the most conflict so I have character A that wants this and I have character B that wants this other thing well what are we going to do we're going to put them in the situation where that conflict is the the hottest the most intense and then if it's a comedy you're going to write out of that situation with a comedic intent, but, you know, and it'll end up being kind of funny, but you still are going to run for the conflict. If you don't run for the conflict, then everybody's happy and just sitting around telling jokes, which is the death of many a sitcom. Which is just Um, slapstick because there's no,
1: there's no center portion to it. Like today, Bridesmaids was playing in the background of our house. It just happened to be on our TV. And I, I sat and watched it for a couple minutes. It's, you know, it's a really funny movie, but it's also about a person who's absolutely having their life collapse around them you know they're losing their friends their job their life everything collapsed around them and then they have to take a shit in the street and 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 it played played differently you know it's 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 the recipe for tragedy uh, of tragedy right but it's it's the quality of of the person's logic that makes us sure amused so
2: yeah now that you're saying right. the confidence thing writer that's so it's so true i mean i think that all the good comedy that i do as a performer comes out of it always comes out of a philosophy of a character or a situation so it's putting a confident philosophy up against whatever situation or worldview or whatever um and then when you think about that in terms of writing you know the best comedic writers are so confident, even their completely critical or hard thinking points of view against the world. I mean, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide is a good example, and we'll get way more into that later. But um, you know, George Saunders, like these are really critical people, um, and they're not afraid to be mm-hmm. critical, and yeah. they don't feel that they have to hedge their bets, and you know tragedy or drama can really you know you can people are so much more victimized in those situations where a comedic writer can never be a victim they always have to be an aggressive (laughs) outsider um who really (laughs) believes in the truth of the comedic scenario they're setting up so yeah i think confidence is the key we've solved it confidence is comedy
1: and you know when i was younger and was trying to be funny you know it just i sounded wheedling, i think mm-hmm. you know and then mm-hmm. when i would write essays that i i hoped were funny and then later when i you know like my my last book i wanted it to be black comic but i didn't want to write any jokes and and so you know like i would have to put myself in that that area where i i have to make sure that the the character is weird and fucked up enough to be that people will understand the logic and be like oh, that guy's fucking weird and i find it vaguely amusing um, right. and, but I think it is confidence I think I think that's that, that's exactly what it is and the confidence to, to fuck up in front of someone right like to have, well, you, know, have you ever you. noticed that like when you're around certain people you're funnier
0: mm-hmm. yeah like do you know what I mean you, <laughs> you have people that you that f- you feel comfortable that they know your humor they know when you're joking and you're always funnier around them like mm-hmm. I've definitely noticed that in my life you know like there are certain people that think of me as a serious person and it's probably because in that relationship we don't, I don't feel comfortable enough to be, you know, funny. Right. Whereas with other people, when I'm more comfortable and I, you know, we've laughed together in the past, I'm more confident and I'll take that risk. Because comedy is always a level of risk.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and as people are always want to say about you and I when we're together, Ryder, that we bring out the very <laughs> the worst qualities in <laughs> yes, one another. You bring out
0: the, <laughs> the scummy <laughs> comedian in me. The... <laughs> Great! great. <laughs> so yeah, I was actually specifically thinking of Todd. I so. Uh, Actually, let's get right into our satires because it's right into it because it's already been 20 minutes of talking before satire. But um, I was actually going to talk about George Saunders because I think he is probably the greatest living satirist in America. Right? Yeah, I agree. And I I know we've mentioned him on the show before, but I have to say Civil War Land and Bad Decline is I think that's his first collection of short stories. Or at least the first collection I read is so unbelievable and everybody should rush out right now and buy it i haven't finished his latest book which i've heard was also incredible. so good but i wanted to read a section from pastoralia which is um his second collection of short stories i think um there's this i was just flipping through it today and i found the perfect what i thought was the perfect george saunders uh moment so you know george saunders tends to write in this he he, a lot of times he creates a science fictiony kind of world where there's some new technology or it's post-apocalyptic in some way but he always starts in media res so you have right. no idea what the world is and he's very involved with his characters and he his voice you know, his prose changes to the voice of the characters effortlessly and it's always this breezy style and you kind of have to start in the middle of this world and then figure out like what how it's operating who's in charge and what happened to humanity to get us here what the technology is that they're using so there's a lot of like sort of detective work that you do as a reader, just to find your way out of a George Saunders story and see what's going on uh, because his central characters, he invests so heavily in them and his narrators are always so fully um, fleshed and, and they're just in their world. They don't question their world the mm-hmm. same way that you do. Um so anyway, this is from the middle of one of the stories and honestly, I'm not even going to give a summary because I don't think anybody needs to know what's going on in the story. It's just a scene of this, you know, post vaguely post-apocalyptic or in slightly in the future America and this family sits down to eat and watch dinner. Or whoa, well, eat dinner and watch TV. For dinner, Jade microwaves some Stars and Flags, and Stars and Flags is capitalized. They're addictive. They put sugar in the sauce and sugar in the meat nuggets. I think also caffeine. <laughs> Someone told me the brown streaks and the flags are caffeine. We have like five bowls each. After dinner, the babies get fussy, and Min puts a mush of ice cream and Hershey syrup in their bottles, and we watch the worst that could happen. A half hour of computer simulations of tragedies that have never actually occurred, but theoretically could. A kid gets hit by a train and flies into a zoo where he's eaten by wolves. A man cuts off his hand chopping wood, and while wandering around screaming for help, is picked up by a tornado and dropped on a preschool during recess and lands on a pregnant teacher. And like oh that God. is the essence of George Saunders. You mean this incredibly
1: sea by George Saunders, the story that yes, I was going course. to talk
0: about?
1: <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I've just picked up to hold in front of the okay. screen.
0: <laughs> yes, that's amazing because that is the ultimate. It's an amazing story, yes, and, and it's, it's such an ultimate example also. of like how dark how dark he goes and but you know there's something vaguely familiar about that like you know all of us have watched horrible daytime tv and seen the kind of you know when animals attack shows and we've all eaten food and been like what's in this Uh, it's some kind of meat nugget maybe it has caffeine and sugar in it like it it just captured you know i don't know it was the essence of george saunders distilled into a paragraph for me um
2: so all three of us are planning to talk about George no, Saunders? No, I'm not, now?
1: because my favorite satire is actually not fiction. My favorite satire is yeah. movies.
2: Okay. Okay, well, let's get to that in okay. a second, but... So, uh, the Let me just pile on to the George Saunders thing. I'm a huge fan. Actually, I've been begging him to come to the Twain House forever and he keeps running back, you know, like, maybe, and it's killing me, but um, <laughs> one of my favorite stories of his is the title story from In Persuasion Nation. Have you guys mm-hmm. read that one? No. Um, uh, oh it's great uh, so first of all it's a great book title and a great story title um but persuasion nation is this alternate reality where all of the um like objects and characters from commercials live <laughs> and they all are stuck in an endless loop of whatever happens to them in their commercials oh so God. like uh, like a, a kid like skateboards over his grandfather and then like slaps his mom and then takes a pop tart <laughs> or whatever it is you know what i mean right. and they are in this endless cycle until some of the uh, and some of the things that are you know main characters in the story are basically like a bag of cheetos and other things like that so those things um, the loop starts to change, and they start to change the narrative, and it's just—it's so crazy, but it's—it's it's really fantastic. So I would recommend mm. that one as well.
1: I, I love George Great. Saunders. I love Sea Oak specifically. The story that Ryder was talking about, which I had pulled up on my on my little iPad here, because it's a zombie story that involves a zombie ant saying to the character, "Show your cock." <laughs> <laughs> it's very dark. It's a, re- it's a, it's very a really bizarre dark story. story. But I think I think. <laughs> There, there's some satirists that are fiction writers that people don't think is being satirical, like Dan Sean. He has a great short story called Safety Man uh, in his collection Among the Missing about a woman who basically falls in love with uh, an inflatable man that uh, she dri- she can drive around with after her, after her husband dies. Or they can leave in the window so it looks like there's a man in the house. And then there's another story of his mm. called Big Me um, about a kid who, you know, basically wants to be a a detective in his own small town. But, I mean, they're not funny is the thing. They're tragic. And I think sometimes when I read satirical fiction, it stops being funny because I see the machinery of the tragedy behind it. So my favorite satire, really, and and like if if I need to find a happy place, if I'm on a plane and I think it's about to go down, I will watch Galaxy Quest, the movie Galaxy Quest over and over and over again because it's and it's it's actually apropos to our discussion about hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um because it's you know if you haven't seen galaxy quest number one stop listening to podcasts go turn on tbs it's on there um and you know it it takes itself seriously and that's what makes it so funny that it's making fun of this fake star trek type tv show and all the characters are you know very recognizable but they aren't in on the joke. We're the only ones that are in on the joke, and it's it's so fucking funny. And I I end up quoting the movie constantly, um, and it's it's a, a very comfortable place because it makes fun of the things that I love about sci-fi. You know, oh, there's a rock monster. What's the rock monster's motivation? You know, oh, I love that shit. <laughs> and Tim Allen basically. I, hold on, hold on, hold on. on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna
0: quibble with you, though. I'm gonna quibble with you. Like, what is is that technically a satire or is that a parody? Like, what? I feel like there's a difference because a satire usually is 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 hewing closer to. Well, no, what is
1: it?
2: It's. I think uh, a satire is more critical.
0: Yeah, like I don't know Karen what Galaxy Quest is critical of other than it's
1: critical of of sci-fi fandom and oh. and the okay. the right. idea that people associate real life with what happens on Star Trek that that they're to glean anything from that. So I think there's that part of it, and then it's also satirizing Hollywood, mm-hmm.
2: right.
1: satirizing the culture right. personality that goes along with these people.
2: Well, my favorite satire writing since you've opened the non-book, you know, porthole <laughs> that we can go through, um, is, a uh, porthole?
1: <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. Either one. I was just going to you, hope you've that... You've still got
0: boats on your mind. <laughs>
1: I was hoping Tucker wouldn't edit out port-hole.
2: <laughs> <laughs> porthole. No, leave it. Porthole. When has anyone ever said the word por- porthole in, like, in the last 30 years of my life? Never. Uh, anyway... Uh, I really love, I'm a huge South Park fan and Trey Parker and Matt Stone in, in general. Um, I just think, you know, everything they're doing is true satire and that it's like yeah. really mm-hmm. angry, really critical. Right. Um, Book of Mormon is, you know, unbelievable because it's satirizing Mormons and musical theater at the same time, which is <laughs> artful. Um, and I. They're just like an endless river of not caring what people think about them, yeah. um, which I think is really critical element of satire, which, you know, when you're making a movie is really tough because movies have to go through so many uh, levels of people's approval, right. I feel like, more than any other art form. So right. movies often, while they probably start out satirical in script, you know, are edited down to parody because we don't want to offend the masses of people who will pay millions of dollars to see them. Hmm. Well, so Whereas I think this is Park, come for up for some reason has a blank slate to just be horrible, which well, I like. I,
0: but because it's a cartoon. Right. You know, that's always right. going uh, to... I think the great American satires are, have been The Simpsons and uh, Family Guy and and South Park because we we give cartoons uh, the sort of, but what if, you well, know, get out of jail But what about part. something
1: like MASH, you know, that ran for 20 years, satirizing a war that lasted you know, a quarter of the time. I don't know,
0: man. I, I I feel like, you know, it's interesting because the, the two examples that you've picked are, are closer to what I think is going on in, um, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. And that is a less biting satire than I, than some of the examples that Julia and I, I've been mentioning um, because like the movie that I was thinking of was a film called Bob Roberts. Oh have yeah. I've ever seen that. It's a it's good it's movie. A, mm-hmm. Yeah. A mockumentary. It's a political mockumentary with Tim Robbins as a star and he wrote it and directed it too. It's wonderful. Mm. It came out in like 1994 and it's this whole idea that this really, really conservative, um, um, uh, I think he's a senatorial candidate or maybe he's just running for the house. Um, but he, um, he's like a folksy Bob Dylan guy. So he plays songs about, you know, how down to earth American he is. And he's also like, of course, the most cynical, you know, evil conservative guy. Um, but so I, I actually ended up looking up satire and I did it in two places. I looked up satire in, did you guys ever have this book, Binet's Reader's Encyclopedia? No. Do you know this no. book? No. This was, like, one of those first reference books I bought as a teenager when somebody was like, oh, you're into literature? You need a Benet's Reader's Encyclopedia. (laughs) And so, like, you know, it was given to me, or maybe I went out and bought it. I don't know. But I I, I know that this was, like, always my go-to in college, like in my freshman or sophomore year of college, and somebody would use a literary term that I wouldn't understand, I would go home and look it up. <laughs> here, you know, write it I'm down. Like, this is, this was, so when I was thinking like, what is satire exactly? And how is it different from a parody? And what I, I went and grabbed this and I looked it up and um, it has a pretty great definition or, you know, a couple a sampling. And then I went onto Wikipedia and I was like, well, let's see what Wikipedia has to say. And of course, Wikipedia has so much more information on the definition of satire. And it's just almost, Overwhelming, and I kind of like had to stop reading the Wikipedia entry. I was like, There's too much information here to the point where I'm losing track of what a satire is. But both sources really talk about two different types of satire, and um, the Wikipedia, of course, says there's three, and but I'm, I'm sticking with the Benez for a second, and maybe it's pronounced Bennett's, so I'm actually not sure. Well, it's French, but yeah, it's French. So they talk about. He, in here, they talk about the Juvenalian satire and the Horatian oh, satire. Boy. Juvenalian is a biting, morally indignant expose of evil and corruption, and a Horatian is a gently humorous satire that aims to correct through laughter. And hmm. it sounds like you know when you think about you know what what your average South Park episode decides to skewer, it's usually pretty on the money, and it's pretty it's it, they don't they don't shy away from who they're attacking. Right. You know, they outright call ideology is ridiculous that they're criticizing as ridiculous. And they create a storyline to sort of um, illustrate that ridiculousness. Whereas when you you think about galaxy quest, like for me, that's an example of a movie that actually has a lot of love for the sci-fi genre and probably loves the fans. And actually is sort of gently chiding the fans for being so nerdy and needy and so um, dedicated to this. But actually, at the end, you know, the fans end up being the heroes. Like, it's not that Mm. bitey. Like, I didn't walk away from Galaxy Quest going, like, I'm never watching a Star Trek movie again. They're so, so stupid. If anything, Galaxy Quest made Star Trek movies better because then they have to be more sophisticated. They can't rely on the cliches that were lambasted by galaxy quest and so the next star trek movie has to up its game so I, I think it's it's helpful to think about those two and going into our discussion with the the hitchhiker's guide like i think this is a very good question that i had about the book is like how biting is mm-hmm. it what is it actually saying about the universe and humanity and that's kind of my overriding question to leading us into that discussion um because i'm not sure like i don't know I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's either really, really critical in a way that I kind of missed or it's kind of soft. Well,
1: it's also really, really, really critical of a time when you were four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: Okay, so shall we get into it? Do we feel good? Do we know what yeah. satire is? Yeah. I love South Park. My favorite episode is the one where Britney Spears doesn't successfully kill herself.
1: Love that. Oh, that's so oh you know what? Um, uh, what I also love is Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles. Now, is Blazing Saddles satire or parody? Oh, yeah.
2: No, that's parody, mm-hmm. man.
0: I think that's
1: parody. My entire life is a lie. Welcome back, everybody, from that scintillating talk on the difference between satire, parody, and uh, adge- abject and total porthole sadness.
2: I feel like we <laughs> came to no conclusions, which no <laughs> good for us.
1: Yeah, I don't know what, what this book is that we've actually talked about other than... Um, when i was a kid the most important book i'd ever read so we're talking about the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy by douglas adams which came out in 1979 and it was originally a uh, a radio play um, and it has since been a radio play a stage play a movie i think it's a mime show uh, it's been a little <laughs> bit of everything um and there have been several sequels um so long thanks for all the fish is that one of them Um, the restaurant the end of the universe, um, there's a, there's a thousand of them. I, I read this book. I I was looking for this. This this is the one thing I can't find on the internet uh, that I've ever written, which is I wrote an appreciation of Douglas Adams for a newspaper when he died in 2001. Um, because when I was a kid, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was like my best friend. It was the only thing that made me feel normal when I was about 10 years old. I had no idea. That's really cool. Yeah, it it was a really important book to me. And all of the Hitchhiker books were really important to me when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, probably 13 years old. Um, You know, it was when I read it at 10 or 11 years old, it was the funniest thing I'd ever read. And Douglas Adams made me feel like I was not alone in the world, Hmm. that someone else thought weird stuff. And was into Monty Python. Uh, <laughs> That's so funny. That's maybe, exactly
0: what I was thinking of when I was reading this book. At one point, I was like, "Why do I feel like I'm suddenly, uh, you know, watching The Holy Grail, Monty Python and the Holy Grail again?" It has this yeah, similar it, it, tone, right? It's that. It's, cer- yeah, it it's certainly
1: of its time, and it's, it's you know reminiscent of the Doctor Who episodes that I saw on PBS when I was a kid. But these, this book was so important to me. I, I, I thought I still actually had it, and I didn't. I, I can still remember the, the copy that I had and the cover and how bent back it was. I read that book. So what I remember about reading this book originally is reading it when my mom was going crazy. And she would be going nuts inside of our house and throwing platters of frozen meat at us and you know ripping things off the walls and tearing up books just you know she was a lunatic Mm. and i would go in my room and i would lock the door and i would read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and i would just read it over and over and over and over again but i hadn't read it in a thousand years um since we read it this time and i have to tell you reading it this time uh it actually made me a little depressed because it put me back in into the mind of wondering what how awful my life was that I had memorized this book when I was 11 years old. I mean, it was so funny, but you know, it, it was a completely different experience for me and I couldn't quite capture in my mind what it was that had, made me so happy other than it you know it's just a it's an absurd world and it took me away um so when Douglas Adams died in 2001 it really affected me really it really was quite sad and he was very young um you know i think he was 56 i, I want to say let's see here not even let's see what the internet says i think it was only like 51
0: moment, he was born in 1952
1: wow so yeah so he was 50. 51 yeah wow so he was young um but so i i had read so long and things for the fish life, the universe, um, the rest of the end. I, I didn't read mostly Harm- harmless, which was his last, uh, hitchhiker's book, but I read, uh, the Dirk gently books which were, which were, um, these detective novels. So I was deeply into him as a kid. I haven't opened up one of these books since puberty. Hmm. <laughs> had, you know, had very little memory. I didn't see the movie when it came out, um, you know, like 10 years ago and it was widely panned. Um, So I I sort of have a hard time judging this book Because it's wrapped up in so much weird shit In my head Um, So I'm curious what you guys uh, Experienced reading it for the first time now
2: Yeah so if it's not clear Um Ryder and I had not read this book before now And I am This is one of the few like super zeitgeisty books Of the last 20 or 30 years That I have not read So it was really fun for me to read it Um i'm gonna i mean i i really liked it i didn't profoundly change my life but i absolutely <laughs> absolutely had i read this when i was 12 or 13 oh my god i i can totally see it i mean it's mm. and, and i don't think that's because it's a ya book i just think it's because it introduces as we were saying earlier like very serious criticisms um, and ideas in a really great, silly package. Actually, it reminded me of some books that I, I bet you guys have not read, which are children's books, um, just tonally. Um, mm-hmm. Children's books by Louis Satcher called Wayside School is Falling Down. Did you guys ever read those books? No. They're, oh, I, yeah, I you think they the were wrote, very specifically my generation. Is, is that the guy? Yeah, same guy. Yeah. Um, but they were just just really bizarre, basically short stories for kids, but they all existed in this you know school that was really strange um and just the only similarity is how silly the tone is and how mm-hmm. aggressively silly the tone is so you know i was familiar with that tone and i i was into it i mean i definitely chewed through this bad boy in probably i don't know two hours <laughs> yeah it's only
1: like 175 pages yeah. in my mind yeah, it's a fast novel super quick it's, it's, reading <laughs> i mean if if you want to read a script this is just a script yeah <laughs> that's, that's all this really is yeah yeah,
2: yeah. What
0: did you think, Ryan? Um, Yeah, I mean, silly is the word that, that, that came to me finally, and I was like, that's what this is, which is a little harder for me at first. Like, you know, it was just hard for me to d- embrace the silliness, you know, by, like, the fourth made-up mm. name where it's, like, Vigil Block and Farty Pants and, like, whatever. <laughs> There's just this level of, like, really? Okay. Look, Will. And then... um. I actually really got into it and had so much fun and it's so simple me and too. it's short um, and it reminded me of like the... It's, I, I I've, you know, always said we shouldn't have a YA label and I think this is a good example of why we shouldn't because I think this is a book that probably finds naturally its audience being slightly younger and, and maybe more open to embracing silliness right up front but um, it's actually a great book and it's really... I love the the actual plot turns are pretty funny. I mean, once you create this absurd universe and then, you know, rationalizing like the the point where you are reading the thoughts of a whale as it plummets towards a planet to die, and you actually care what this whale is thinking about, like, that's, that is such an absurdist, crazy situation, and I was totally on board by that point, so, you know, I think it just takes a while to get past those first, or at least for me, it took the first 30 pages, we are like, ugh, really, am I gonna do this, am I gonna, but I have to say, um, you know, I, the, the book that made me think of the most was fantasy books like, the lord of the rings trilogy because it felt very similar and it's like how much patience am i going to give something this divorced of reality you know how much but and you, you know,
1: know wh- it 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 set the template for you know sean of the dead and all those right. type of movies that came I out did. i did like, i thought of
0: edgar wright's work too like yeah no it's it's there's something to it um i can't imagine reading this and thinking it would make a good film Because it doesn't. like It's so clearly based on... It's crazy. Yeah, I I mean, now I kind of want to see the movie because I can't believe anybody thought that was a good idea. I mean, I'm reading this and it's like when they're going into hyperdrive and they're describing what it feels like for their bodies, you can't film that. That's the whole point is that it's in fiction. It's a storytelling technique that you can't visualize and that's what's fun about it. So
1: (laughs) There's an old story my brother tells from having worked on the TV show Hunter. (laughs) <laughs> where uh, he had written a very long script, and Fred Dryer w- would rip out a page and say, "I'll handle that with with an arch of my eyebrow. I'll handle that with a smirk." <laughs> and uh, it was <laughs> it was any sort of you know in depth uh, emotional thing. part yep. of the <laughs> of the script. And I, I was thinking about that as it relates to this: is how would you do that? Well, you'd have to do it with a smirk. And I think mm. that's probably what the movie was. And and you know the person who played Arthur Dent. Um, is uh, what's his name? The guy who William McGregor? No, the guy who plays Bilbo in The Hobbit, and um, oh, yeah. oh,
2: Martin Freeman. Yeah, Martin
1: Freeman, the guy from The Office. Um, and you can sort of see him as this character and sort of handling things in a smirky sort of way, but it loses the charm, I think. Yeah. But you're, I think you're totally right, Rudder, is that you have to divorce yourself from your preconceived notions of narrative. Of drama, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just give yourself over to. Well, you just have absurdity. to care
0: about ridiculousness, right? I mean, right. you have to, and and I I think like I couldn't, I can't read Lord of the Rings like I can't give into that ridiculousness because it's so <laughs> self important, it's so serious, you know. And this isn't at all; it's so breezy. And when you mm. when you can embrace that and just go along for the ride, it's it's fun. It's super fun. I mean, I can't take, but I think that you can take Lord of the Rings more seriously when you're. 12 or 13 or whatever's going on in your life you do like i mean todd what you were describing earlier sounds to me like this this was escapism this was wonderful oh, it was, escapism it was and, it you was know awesome, i think yeah. this is probably more productive escapism than the lord of the rings even though you probably you might have enjoyed that too for me this reflects much more directly to our real life and america and consumerism well, yeah, or whatever I mean, else
2: this is i mean I can see how uh, you would treat it with escapism, but I mean, like, there's so... Well, first of all, I was totally distracted by the wonderful quality of sci-fi predictability that's happening. I mean, I just could not (laughs) believe what this book was describing. It's a completely different experience reading it right now. I mean, the, the... two of the most major technological things that are described are a book that's so long that it's contained in an electronic device where you can look up any part of it at any time. I mean, that is crazy. Right. Yep. That, Amazing. That, that just that describing
0: is... the Kindle. And the yeah, iPad.
2: exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. directly. I mean, not even like, oh, they, right. he was close. No. Like, He's like, like
0: the ignorant. words go across yeah. the front it of the screen. It even glows Four like the Four inches by three yeah. inches. I'm like, that's the size of my iPhone. Yeah. Like he just described it.
2: That and then the... Um, the uh, w- one of my favorite jokes in it is the computer systems being imbued with human personalities and right. trying to have them be oh. all friendly and loving I mean that is the premise of her you know what I mean right. the movie her right. um, and it's and the, something the mere idea really of the paranoid
1: towards. Android you know I mean that's every yeah. every movie that has come since then basically has had a paranoid Android <laughs>
2: right. yeah yeah c3po I mean this is Right. Although, although this came after was first. that. But yeah. um, so that was that was an interesting experience. I mean, like no kid reading this now is going to have the same mental experience of Baby Todd. But um, <laughs> I, I think the social criticisms embedded <laughs> in this are really good. You know, they're really in um, that way. It's closer to Wall-E or something like that. Um, where it's not just silly, it's definitely not just silly. There's a okay, lot hold on, but
0: that's aggressive. kind of what I wanted to get at. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go for it. What is the social criticism? Like, because I definitely can watch Wally and be like, "All right, Americans eat too much and gain too much weight. Don't move them enough, right? Like we are, and we rely on technology too much. Like I can point to Wally and see in the story uh, your characteristics that are in contemporary life being reflected back to me in a poor way." And in this case, I'm not sure what's being reflected back to me. Am I supposed to feel bad about the way we treat animals? Because that's kind of the only thing I get from this. And I go, this is something, you know, like I've I've benefited from science experimenting on mice, which plays a big part of this plot. So, therefore, is that the only... Because otherwise, the whole world gets evaporated, and I'm not sure where the criticism is reflected back to me. And I can look at this and say, oh, my behavior is going to be better now that I've read this book or that I've thought about this issue. I'm not sure what behavioral change I would make. Well, I don't think you book. can look
1: at it as a, as a teaching tool. I mean, I think sure. it's it's talking about the same things that sci-fi often talks about, which is the state of the world at the time it was written. And so already you're seeing burgeoning consumerism, uh, a lack of regard for the planet. We're ruining our resources. We're abusing our animals and we're abusing ourselves and our self-delusionatory about our place in the universe. And so all that stuff, you know, it's basically saying we could be zapped out at any minute. And in the scope of the universe, we're so insignificant as to be, you know, we're just gray matter, basically. That's great, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's exactly, I totally agree. And I think that operates on multiple levels of the book. And I think this is why it is very popular with teenagers, is because it very breezily and simply presents the idea that we're not as awesome as we think we right. are on many levels. <laughs> right. Yeah. One, in that the, so the, planet, that the planet could di- disappear at any second and it's no big deal to anyone else. Um, <laughs> right. Two, that... Mostly um, harmless,
1: you know? That, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean right. It, it's right there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Two, and, and this is the big spoiler, but I think everybody knows the whole plot of this book in the world anyway, but that mice are have been testing us rather than us testing right. mice. I really right. like that. Such um, a
0: fun turn. I was so happy yeah. to read that because so I had like no that idea that that, that, that was coming. I really just, loved it. It's
2: just fantastic of like, we're not the center of the universe. We're not even the center of our own world. And it's perspective. That I mean, that's what good sci-fi has to offer at all times is perspective and to offer it in such a fun way to like a lot of people is it's very valuable. I mean, perspective (laughs) is presented very well in comedy. And think about it also
1: what it's reacting to in sci-fi. So this is post 2001 post Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 and the evolution of sci-fi that happened after that. And here he comes along. You know, just saying, oh, stop being so fucking self-important. You know, old <laughs> right. man on a planet. You know, Europe. Right. This is absurd. You know that <laughs> we literally are a bypass, and you know, not everything that is in the universe is about the humans. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, reading it now, I I I got that reaction when I was when I was eleven. I was just like, yeah, man, it's you know. My crazy mom is insignificant. We're all going to die. You know, it's lucky I didn't right. know it's fucking shoot you a Columbine. It's almost because you know, everybody's respect. equal.
0: Right. Okay. We're all equal in our insignificance. So right. the people that at that age hold power over you become powerless in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I'm trying to find a little bit about God and like proving God. Do you guys oh, know yeah, yeah. About?
0: yeah, that's a really weird right. passage. There's so many fun little passages. I wanted to point out the one. I won't read it because it's kind of long. But I love the weird moment where one character says something to the other and that sentence goes through the time-space continuum to like some other intergalactic war between two warring species of, on another planet. They win that war and fight for centuries and then come back to get revenge on Earth but they get, mess up their scale so they come back so small they just get swallowed by a dog. Right. It's like this the most random like two-page moment where you're like wait a minute, what am I reading about? And But it's really funny and clever and, and reinforces the the theme you guys have been saying how insignificant all these things are and how insignificant we are um, or in that case how significant we are to another whole you know galaxy and then how insignificant they are to us It's just mm-hmm. a great
1: weird aside the, the thing about God is on is on page 46 at least of uh, my version which is um, the argument goes something like this I refuse to prove that I exist says God for proof denies faith and without faith I am nothing which you know that'll that'll bend your mind a little bit
2: yeah but then it goes on and says like and the humans were smug about it or whatever it's just a really oh yeah here it is so but says man the babble fish is a dead giveaway could not have evolved by chance it proves you exist and so therefore by your own arguments you don't qed oh dear says god i hadn't thought of that and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic (laughs) oh that was easy says man and for an encore goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed in the next pedestrian crossing. Yeah. I and mean, that's yeah. super classic of this book. Yeah. It's yeah. funny.
1: And, you know, at, when he was writing this stuff at the time, you know, so this was it was first a radio play. And at the time Douglas Adams was actually writing for Doctor Who. Um, so he wrote for the season that aired in, I think, 78 or 79. And I think it was a story editor on the show. So a lot of the stuff that you see in this book and, and the reason why I think there's clear parallel now clear parallels now to the current seasons of Doctor Who, if you should watch it, is that, you know, he he created some of the modern day mythology of what we think of as sort of quirky sci-fi. And I think they were they were still using ideas that he pitched all the way through like two thousand ten or eleven. I remember reading something about Like one of the Christmas episodes, or something that was based on a a Douglas Adams idea from a thousand years before. So these these ideas of insignificance, but also of strange powers that exist in the world that that see our insignificance and mock it. It was more original in 1979 than it is now, and I think you know some of the humor suffers because of it. But then some of the humor also is just like, oh, it was written by someone who was 26. You know, it's just it's dumb fart jokes. You know, like you were saying about right. the names, Ryder, because like, one of the characters' name is something like Sloppy Fart Man right. or something. know. Like <laughs> even...
0: yeah. There's this fun, funny moment early on in the book that I circled and I was thinking about um, where they you, you've met two humans at this point, and you then you learn that one of them isn't a human at all. That he's been he's an alien and he's been on the planet for 15 years undercover, and he's talking to our main character Arthur and um, Arthur says something sarcastically, and then uh, Ford, the guy, the alien, says they don't. It says about him, they don't have sarcasm on Betelgeuse, which is the planet he's from. And I suddenly realized, like, how often that is used in sci-fi. You know, there's a obviously Vulcans don't have emotions, right? They're they're Mm very logical, and there's always this idea that that the most human characteristic is sarcasm and irony. And I thought that that related. Nicely to the book in general It's like in a way You know the most human we can be Is to be sarcastic because it implies A connectivity you know If you're saying something literally But and then implying it's Opposite with your tone or with your face Or with the position that you You've you've put yourself in the conversation You're you're connecting with the person On a nonverbal level you're communicating Something more than the words you're literally Saying and that that becomes the most Human way to share and connect with other people I, I i think is really kind of true and i mm-hmm. think that you know that's why you write a satire is because you believe that like i think that that is a you know the idea that that sarcasm is almost the most human thing we can do is something that douglas adams firmly believed and it's something that a lot of you know jonathan swift probably firmly believe And like the idea that that by being disruptive and um, winking that when you share that wink with a person, it's almost more powerful than if you share a literal agreement with each other.
1: But what's the relationship to that, to cynicism though? I wonder, you know, like having a cynical worldview versus a sarcastic worldview. So like there's, uh, so there's the part when he comes to on the ship and he realizes, um, so this is page, uh, page 47. Um, he comes to on the ship and he realizes that he's on a spaceship and he says, england no longer existed he got that somehow he got it he tried again america he thought has gone he couldn't grasp it he decided to start smaller again new york has gone no reaction he'd never seriously believed it existed anyway the dollar he thought has sunk forever slight tremor there every bogart movie has been wiped he said to himself and that gave him a nasty shock mcdonald's he thought there is no longer any such thing as a mcdonald's hamburger he passed out. When he came around a second later, he found he was sobbing for his right. mother. So right. that's that's cynicism, right? Um, Mixed with sarcasm.
2: Yeah, but that's not sarcastic. I mean, that's just <laughs> critical. Um, I mean, but it also right. has a huge ring of truth to it. I mean, it's impossible to conceive of, you know, like if China blew up right now, I would feel... Less sad than knowing that someone I knew in China had been part of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's it's wow. just elevating a. It's wow. elevating a, a. When the feeling. when the
1: Red Army comes to America, Julia, they're coming <laughs> for you first.
2: They are not coming for me. I have a friend to China. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go ahead. I think I'm going to try and make the connection because I, I think there is a connection, Todd, to what you're saying. And, and let me see if I can work it out because I think it's there somewhere in my brain. But the idea that okay, so sarcasm is the power of the disempowered, right? Like you, you use sarcasm because you can't literally say what you're fighting for. You have to undermine what you're literally saying with some sort of wink or intonation that lets the person know that you're being subversive. Mm -hmm. So it's a subversive act. And so sarcasm is the power of the underdog. It's the person who's feeling cynical about the authority. So, you know, satire is always about poking fun at the government or the, you know, the commercial, the economy, what, what you're poking fun at authorities that you feel disempowered by. Because if you were empowered, you would actually just go out and change them. You would, you know, uh, take over the government or violently or otherwise or economically or you would just do the things you want to do literally. Sarcasm is the power of the person saying, you know, I'm going to not literally subvert the government i'm going to subvert it with my tone mm-hmm. or with my you know my wink here and i think that that's that's the role of satire is to be cyn- I mean, so it will inherently be cynical because it has to tear down authority in some on some level see that's so interesting i think, so interesting. I think
2: yeah. that yeah i agree with what you're saying but i also I mean, feel it's, like it's
1: john stewart's role basically
2: yeah
0: right exactly because john stewart is always able to say <laughs> i'm just a comedian right you know, when it gets too serious, he can sure. throw up his hands, and you know, like he did when they brought him on Fox, and he was like, "I'm followed by a puppet show. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you know? Don't don't take me too seriously." But of course, John Stewart ends up being one of the most serious voices in American politics right. because of that position, because it's a an, it's it's an extremely powerful position to place yourself outside of the authority and then subvert it mm-hmm. from
2: outside. I, I think that's true. I think, but you're speaking of sarcasm so positively, and while I agree, there's great context for it, like. <laughs> As a comedian myself, like, I really don't, sarcasm is really, really, really hard to do well in a way that doesn't just sound like complaining. Yeah. It's really, really, right. really, really, really difficult. And I think that right now in American humor, we're moving away from sarcasm and much more towards sincerity, you know, where Jon Stewart's still popular, um, you know. John Oliver's show is much more it's like John Stewart without sarcasm is just really (laughs) really angry. Yes. Um, and people love it and it feels refreshing. And um, yeah, yeah, I love it too. And sarcasm is tough.
0: Unfortunately in this in this conversation we've because of the connection I made, we sort of collapsed satire and sarcasm. Yeah. And I think that Mm -hmm. we should sort of maybe take those apart again because I think Jon Stewart and John Oliver and a lot they they all fit within the realm of satire, sure, not so much necessarily, because sarcasm is just a tool of the satirist. Yeah, but, right. um, but I mean, I do but think in general, satire can take a form that is not necessarily sarcastic sure. but, in tone.
1: And so here, though, he's he's really applying a very British sensibility, obviously because he is British. But you couldn't read this and not hear that <laughs> you know the 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 Monty Python you totally. know acid tongue. <laughs> view of the world I mean
0: understatement drive right right.
1: I mean it it was born to be acted by John Cleese you know you you Mm -hmm. can just see it and I think that's a very interesting thing that you know that this book if it were written by an American would be a completely different experience than if than it is written by a Brit in 1978 Um, totally agree and and I think the disconnection that people probably have reading it now if they do and, and I'm sure people probably do and I'm sure people still read it and enjoy it is some of the things that he's satirizing um, are off the, the consciousness of the world. You know, like Save the Whales. It was such a big thing right. yeah. that they made a Star Trek movie about saving the fucking whales. Right. Um, and <laughs> they wrote a Choose Your Own Adventure they- <laughs> about it.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i couldn't
0: believe we came back up to wales <laughs> is the, it was it was somebody, the keep reading man. books from 1979 <laughs> that's what happened.
1: so i think there's you know some of the humor is is lost because because it was a radio play it had to be of that exact moment right like you, you're not going to do All a right. radio play of something that was funny in in 1925 now hey everybody we're going down to Chasins with the flim flam and the jib jab you know no one wants to hear that mm-hmm. shit <laughs> Um, (laughs) except for me because i like to do that voice Uh, (laughs) it looks like those crazy crowds are bombing the jews again um that would be a little radio play Mm -hmm. from the 1940s um so you know there's there's something there's something about the way he captures that that time and place as well that i think enhances the humor of it at least for me because i remember it
0: yeah i know yeah i wonder if it'll fade though I wonder if people that don't remember will will connect to it in the I same way. I don't think way. so. I think that
2: you're. I think it's an enhancement, as you say. I think this is fairly timeless, as you know, as satire goes. Honestly, I mean, so, like, because it's about subjects that are so large.
1: Right. So, are there geeky fourteen-year-olds and thirteen-year-olds sitting around their middle schools reading this, or are they reading Hunger Games?
2: Okay, I got to tell you. So, the reason that we're reading this is a friend of mine asked if we would read it. And, um, I jumped on that because lots of people that I know who don't read a lot, like people who read, you know, who read sometimes or read a lot when they were kids, they Mm -hmm. cite this as their favorite book. Like so many people Hmm. say that they love this book. You know, it's people say like, you know. Oh, I'm super busy and I don't read anymore, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is my favorite book. It comes up in my improv shows all the time. I mean, mm. people fucking love this book beyond. It's cool. Anything. It's
0: super imaginative. Yeah. yeah. It's a super imaginative book. And, like, the fact that, you know, it was written 40 years ago and oh my God. I'm able to it read it and 40 still say.
1: 35, yeah, uh, more 35. Or 35. years ago. forty-five years Oh, my oh
0: God. really? 35? Okay. But the fact that I'm able to sit and read a book and. You know, it's it's it blows my mind. Like I'm sitting there going, "Wait, what is happening? Mm-hmm. How are the mice flying? Who are they talking to? They're pan dimensional." You know, like there's so many cool concepts that are still very fresh and out there, and that's great. Like you know that that it's lasted that long, just in terms of what's happening plot wise. Is, you know, it still feels very fresh and weird, and that's cool. And like, he, you gotta give
1: it up because he he. He just said "fuck it" and threw everything oh, out yeah. there. Like he did every crazy fucked up thing he could it's possibly ballsy, do. If it's stuck, it's stuck. If it, stuck, it, stuck. And if it do- doesn't, he it doesn't give ballsy. a fuck. Yeah, it's ballsy. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Also, that reading it now, it's it's fearless yeah, because his comedy is fearless. So much
0: of fantasy nowadays too is so safe in the sense that it's like vampires, werewolves, mm-hmm. zombies. Like this is so out there. You know, there's no you can't like babblefish. You know, it's an incredibly cool concept And it's, it's you know, it serves a, a really traditional sci-fi function You know, how do all these aliens mm-hmm. talk to each other But it does it in such a way that is so fun to read And you're like, oh, that would be weird And then you're imagining a fish crawling in your ear And translating for you And, you know, it's just, it's weird It's, it's, yeah. it's like Jim Henson from the same yeah, era You know, his movies totally. still feel weird Like, why is that? Like, what was it about the 70s that just produced, like, well, they were enduring super high. weirdness?
1: Yes, it was the drugs That's the answer well, and you know, you. I also think about it sort of contextually about the time. It, it was such a strange time. Like, particularly for artists, when you find out post-Watergate that everything you thought was true, that the government is a conspiracy, that everyone's being paid off, right. that nothing that you're being delivered is the actual truth, turns out to, to be the truth? Oh, my God. Like, it it had to have blown artists mind yeah. that all this shit was actually true. Yeah. And then that reflex from it is to make it absurd that, yeah, it is a grand conspiracy on an intergalactic level yeah. that at the far stretches of the universe, someone is saying we need to build a bypass. Yeah. Um, and so that that's, I think something that we forget about when we look at a book like this, or when we look at popular films at that time, all the great films that came out in the late 1970s, you know, reacting to what was going on when basically the world was was exposed to be as crooked as we always believed it was (laughs) and that and at least in america that you know a guy named bob and a guy named carl figured it all out they just happened to be writing for the washington post you know all that stuff i think plays into this you know post vietnam all those things live inside this little novel but then, you know, it's also just a guy making dick jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I, I see how it appeals to the the forty five year old man, or forty three in my case, and the thirteen year old, because you can read into it all you want or it can just be a series mm-hmm. of gags. Uh-huh. You know? And I I think there's I think there's value in that. I think at least as someone who appreciates laughing but doesn't laugh enough reading books, I still I still got a lot of good chuckles, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's surprising um, because we read so few funny books. I mean, the three of us read so few funny books. When's was the last time we read something that was not unintentionally funny? Like, you know, Flowers in the Attic is funny. Um, Pillars of the Earth is funny, <laughs> but it's not because they're funny.
2: Gabriel's so funny. Yeah.
0: Gabriel. Oh, hysterical.
1: Gabriel. God, I hope you guys enjoyed last Laugh, week's episode where it. all three of us yeah. laughed till we cried. Hmm. <laughs> Alright. Well, any last thoughts, boys and girls on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Hey,
2: thanks for making us read it, everybody who loves this book. Yeah. It was I, good. I feel very late um, to the party, yeah.
0: but it was great.
2: Honestly, of the zeitgeist books that we've read, this is
1: one of the best. Yeah, it really right? is. Right? We can say that. Oh, yeah, it's a lot better than The Hardy Boys. Oh, uh,
2: whoa.
0: So that's going to do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read Neil Patrick Harris's Choose Your Own Autobiography. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and saved each week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening.
1: My dog is ready for bed. Minnie apparently doesn't know that the time has changed. I'm in her bedroom.